I think the other thing that is going to be important for developers and that I think there's attention on is that within the property insurance market, the theme is to push more of the risk onto the asset owner. So it's reflected through deductibles, but the idea is how do you align incentives so that the developer, the owner is taking care of the asset and deploying technology that's going to help mitigate risk. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to interview Jason Kaminsky. He's the CEO of KWH Analytics. KWH Analytics, or KWH, is ensuring the energy transition by leveraging the most comprehensive performance database of solar assets in the United States and the strength of global insurance markets through their products. KWH Analytics customers are able to minimize risk and increase equity returns of their renewable energy portfolio. Just prior to joining KWH, Jason spent more than three years as a vice president of environmental finance at Wells Fargo Bank. As a senior member of the Wells Fargo deal team, Jason originated underwrote finance tax equity investments during a time when the bank added nearly one billion of solar assets. Prior to joining Wells Fargo in 2011, Jason worked at SPG Solar, where he supported the CEO on strategic corporate initiatives. This was a great podcast interview with Jason. There's a lot of great points and things that he discusses. Some of them is about how KWH is using data to create insurance products. He talks about trends that he's seeing in solar. He also speaks about solar revenue put product, which is related to underperformance of solar projects which they've seen from their data has been 6% compared to what was forecasted. He also talks about their new property insurance business. Another thing too, as well, that I found very interesting was he talked about a hailstorm in Texas that happened in 2019 that severely impacted a solar project and caused damage to most of the solar panels. And really, since that incident or that storm, it's really having developers and owners of solar projects really look at their insurance seriously. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Thank you for listening, and let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode. You'll learn more about them during this podcast. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have Jason Kaminsky on the podcast. He works at KWH Analytics as the Chief Operating Officer. We've known each other for a very long time. I know we were talking about the pre-interview that I think you're right, actually. We've known each other since 2008. And it's just amazing for me to see like how your career has evolved. So thank you, Jason, for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Benoit. There's not a lot of folks you can say you've worked in the industry since 2008. So it's nice to have some veterans. And it's just amazing to see how like the industry has changed. And even from your perspective, it's going to be great for our listeners to hear about KWH Analytics and the exciting things that you're doing. Can you tell us more about the company? I didn't talk about it in the intro, but it'd be great to get your perspective. Sure. Yeah. So KWH, which is sometimes what we call ourselves, we consider ourselves the company that's ensuring the energy transition. So we were founded in 2012, really with a data premise. And the idea was there's all these solar projects, the data is really scattered, the data is really siloed. 
And one of our early founding board members and early investors used to run Experian and used to run CoreLogic. And both of those companies are really data companies that help those industries evolve. And they track data on the asset class and they basically provide it back to the financial institutions. And this was 2012, right? So there wasn't, I mean, the industry was much smaller than it is today. And at that time, his guidance was, if you think this industry is going to grow as big as you think it's going to grow, I'd say it even grew much larger and much quicker than we thought back at the time, there will be a company that manages data and then uses it to support the financial community. So that was really the premise. Let's be a data provider for the segment. You know, we started out with some software products and some data products. In 2017, we entered as an insurance company that basically providing specialty products into the solar market. And we're introducing a new product later this year, which is more traditional property insurance. I'm sure we'll talk about the various products as we get through the podcast, but we see a big opportunity of really data-driven underwriting. There's a lot of data that's kind of scattered throughout the industry and the ability to consolidate it, throw really smart data scientists at it, and really better assess risk with data is really where we view ourselves and the role we play in the industry. Yeah, that is a huge role. And you guys are innovating the solar industry with data for underwriting purposes. Can you talk about like what type of data, I guess, you take and how that would help for underwriting for our audience who might not be familiar? Sure. So when we started collecting data, you're right. It's what kind of data are you looking at? And for us, it's what I'll call asset-based data. So it's where are projects located? How are they expected to perform? How are they actually performing? In the last couple of years, we've expanded that to also include like what's happening on the site, so more direct tickets, problems that the sites are seeing. I mean, even more recently, property loss data. So this is what kind of physical events or locational events have led to an insurance claim and feeding that back into the underwriting models. And you know the way that we've applied that primarily, at least on the insurance side, is by introducing the solar revenue put, which is basically a production insurance product. So if you know how 30% of the industry is performing, which is what is in our database today, and you know what kind of equipment is installed and how the weather has affected that, and you can basically analyze for any asset, here's how we think probabilistically it should perform. You can put together a financial product that says we can ensure a minimum level of output for a solar project. And here's the price that we need in order to kind of adequately ensure that risk. And there's a few benefits why a client might buy it. But starting with the data side, that's really where we started is great to run a PVSYS model. And everyone's done it. And that's the way the industry's worked. Unfortunately, some of our research has found systems are underperforming against those PVSYS models, an average of 6% or more. So feeding data back from the field into those estimates, into the underwriting, being able to differentiate between different technologies can really add a lot of value. And you know, project finance, which is where my background is, four years at, at Wells Fargo. You know, it's all about risk identification and risk allocation. So if you can better understand the risk, better price the risk, there is an opportunity to, you know, not only enable the industry, but carve out a little business for yourself as well. That's really interesting to hear your perspective. And then talking about underperformance of 6%. And that's interesting because that's kind of what you talk about with your solar risk assessment. Isn't that one of the findings that basically it looks like that there's been underperformance of solar projects compared to like what the projections have been? Yeah, that's right. So we often get asked, what do you find in your data? And one of the services that we felt it's kind of our obligation to provide back to the industry is insights from that. So if you go to our website, kwhanalytics.com, 
We actually have a number of resources on the website that are all about data mining and the conclusions we draw from that. So one of those is the solar generation index, we call it, which is a study of performance and underperformance. And that's where the 6.3% average underperformance number comes from. We also do an annual publication called the Solar Risk Assessment, which is also on the website where we partner with about a dozen other industry-leading firms who all write basically data-oriented conclusions coming from the data that they're seeing. So in that, one of the other ways we've looked at the production side of the equation is how often is a site a chronic underperformer? And one of the metrics certainly the banks look at is what you call a P99. So in theory, that means that one out of 100 years, it should perform below the P99. And 99 out of 100 years, it should perform above the P99. That's the definition. And what we're finding is that actually one in eight projects are performing below the P99 year over year on a pretty consistent basis. And that's important because a lot of the bank loans are kind of structured to the P99 basis. A lot of the performance are structured to that as a downside analysis. So if you're getting that wrong, you're going to have a lot of disappointed and probably angry investors, lenders, what have you, in the financing structure. We also did some research in there. I'll just kind of touch on them briefly, but there's some research related to degradation rates that if you look at research from ourselves, from NREL, from Lawrence Berkeley, Federal Lab, that those on average are about double of what go into most performas. We looked at some trends in property insurance pricing. We have Lockton who wrote an article that those prices are going up quite dramatically. And if you'd like, we could talk more about the dynamics in the property insurance market. Yeah, there's a lot of really great content in there about the O&M, about kind of other pieces of the equation. So if anyone's interested, they're all one-page articles. So it's like all the information you could ever hope for in like a 12-page primer. So it's <laughs> it's a really rich set of content. Yeah, definitely. That is really great content that you're sharing with the community. I thought another interesting one too was like, you talked about the underperformance, which leads to increasing operating leverage. So that also allows potentially to more, as you mentioned, the elevated default risk for loans. I mean, that's in part why we're seeing interest in the revenue put is if you have a loan and it's potentially at risk of default, or you have an equity investor who's not getting their return, one of the ways to tie out that risk is to insure it, is to push that risk, the production risk into the insurance markets. And actually what we're finding is that, you know, not every project is performing below the performance. The top quartile is doing great. The bottom quartile is doing considerably worse than the 6%. But if you're actually able to guarantee to the banks a certain level of revenue, what we're finding is that there's a whole handful of lenders that will actually give you better terms on your loan. Because of all the variability, for those that aren't project finance experts, I'll kind of take a complicated financing structure and try to distill it the best I can. But you go to the bank and you say, I'm going to generate a million dollars of free cash flow this year. So that means after I pay all my expenses and after I bring in all the revenue, I'm going to have a million dollars left over. And the bank's question that they have to answer themselves is, how much is going to be available to pay my principal and interest in 99 out of 100 years, basically, maybe even more conservative than that. And the number that the banks have basically landed on is $70, or I guess in my case, $700,000. So they're discounting cash flows by about 30%. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, but let's say 30%. And with the revenue flow, what we're saying is, well, we can guarantee that there's $850,000 that with the production risk off the table, more cash flow can be generated. And if you're able to guarantee that to the bank and it's a credit worthy 
you know, insurance company, then the bank can underwrite to that. So we're finding that it actually allows developers where that's a super cutthroat market to raise more capital that they can then redeploy into their development business. That's really helpful. And I appreciate you giving an example because I think that helps people understand it simplistically. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. Project finance is always a little bit more complicated than that. It's been a really positive success, I'd say, both for the company, but also for the industry. Because, you know, project finance at its core is about risk allocation. You can understand the risk the best. You can price the risk the best. And some banks, some tax equity investors have basically former independent engineers on staff. They're spending a lot of money on their own production forecasting. And this is a way to tie it off and not only better get an estimate of it, but actually shift the risk to a third party. So as you said, the worst thing that can happen for a bank is a default, like bells and sirens start going off and different groups that you don't even know exist in the bank start poking up their head and asking you what's going on. So anything you could do to avoid that, A, is priority number one. Priority number two is operating the best product to your customers. So it's still an incredibly competitive market. And, you know, it's a competitive landscape out there. So lenders are finding that it's an opportunity to support their customers. And maybe the PPAs are getting thinner. They're getting shorter. There's a whole variety of risks that the banks are being asked to take, whether it's community solar offtake risk, whether it's merchant risk, whether it's what have you. So it's how do you get to a loan size that your customer needs in the most favorable way. And what we're finding is the revenue put is a frequent way to get there. Yeah, that's a great example. And that's interesting too for you to explain how, you know, it's getting more and more challenging for banks based on how like the offtake is changing, the term is changing, and everything is becoming a lot thinner. That you know, really the solar revenue put product is really like a competitive differentiator. Because the developer is always trying to figure out, you know, how to add value and then obviously how to make the banks comfortable in that process to be able to lend more. So that's really interesting. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's right. I thought it was interesting too. Another part, I know you've been at KWH since 2014 and you said that you became an insurance company in 2017, I think. Can you talk about that transition from being a data company to help underwrite to then become like an insurance company? I feel like add so much layer of complexity that I probably don't understand or appreciate that you've probably lived with you and your team. Yeah, it's quite a transition. I don't know if many people know this, but I'm actually a registered insurance broker, which was part of the journey. So I would say we were advantaged that we knew project finance and finance generally. Insurance in many ways is like finance, except all of the terms are different. The concepts are similar, but they just change everything on you. So it's actually a pretty steep learning curve. And we cut our teeth along the way. You know, we approached it from what is the best way to apply the data to the industry, right? You can sell data. I think what we find is if you give someone a raw data stream, it's hard to contextualize. You can sell someone maybe the probability of default, but even that may not improve the project finance structure, right? You might know better things, but it doesn't change your behavior. Or you can wear the risk. So we kind of were pushed that way more by the market than anything we wanted to do, because wearing the risk is actually where value can be created. And within the structure, we're basically providing the underwriting and the sales, and then we're partnering with insurance companies to actually provide the balance sheet. So, you know, it's S&P rated, super strong credit on the back end. We do a lot of deals with Swiss Re, for example. So everyone knows Swiss Re, right? Stellar credit. And we're doing a lot of the, I'll call it science, underwriting, solar-specific work as part of that structure. 
Yeah, it required a lot. I mean, a COO, <laughs> I had to do a lot of the regulatory. There's a lot of licensing, a lot of new things we just had to figure out. So now that we've done it, I think, you know, we feel pretty happy that we're here and that we can sell the products and continue to grow the business. But it's kind of funny because my very, very first company, we were a developer looking to get into project finance. And I think we didn't quite appreciate the leap that was required to structure a project finance deal, all the paperwork involved, all the regulatory requirements. There's kind of a similar leap to insurance. Like it was actually a little bit easier than getting into project finance, but there's a lot of work involved. We relied a lot on advisors and support along the way to help us figure it out. There's a couple of things that I thought was interesting from what you said. It's essentially you felt like you had a pivot because that's Mm -hmm. where the market was going to. If you provide data, people probably wouldn't pay for it or they would, but it's really about putting your money where your mouth is, right? where you're insuring based on the data that you're creating. And that's where you're adding value and people will pay for that value, which is what I kind of gleaned. From yeah, well, they not only pay for it, but it's also adding value into the market more directly. I mean, setting aside even willingness to pay, it's what will the client do with the information. And I think what we found is that the best way to create macro value for the industry is by risk shifting. So pushing the risk into a different market than is currently involved in these deals. Definitely. That's a really great point. I appreciate you talking about that. So it's interesting because you know I know about your prior experience. You've mentioned a little bit about your prior experience. You mentioned about the solar developer like SPG and uh, that's right. Wells Fargo was you know we knew each other then, and you're right. We did know each other when you interned. I think at Chevron. That's right. It's amazing to me when I look at like the diversity of types of energy experience that you have. Can you talk about kind of how you started as an intern at Chevron, which was part of when you're at Stanford, right, doing your MBA? That's right. And kind of how like the whole career progression happened because you've been at established companies and then, you know, KWH was startup. SPG was, you know, a regional developer. And I mean, I think there's so many interesting probably insights that you have from these 12, 13 years. Yeah, well, I'll tell a little bit of revealing about my background that I bear it all for your listeners <laughs> is when SPG, you're right, regional developer, really big in California. I had just been out at Stanford Business School feeling great. I was there about a year and a half and I got laid off. So like it happens. And if it happens, I think the industry now, there's a shortage of talent. So hopefully not as often as it did. Felt like in that era, there's constant layoffs. And it actually was the best thing that happened to me because I landed at Wells Fargo. You know, I had a job offer from Solyndra about a month before they imploded. And I had a job offer from Wells Fargo. So fortunately, I took the Wells Fargo. And worked with, you know, incredibly talented group of folks. I think the background has been helpful because I, at SPG, I got the technical vertical. So I was working with our operations team, you know, constructing these projects. I actually went to China a couple of times to look at how modules are manufactured, but I can go pretty deep on tracker technology, module technology, enough to be dangerous at least. Wells Fargo, I was doing tax equity, right? It's all the project finance structures and kind of everything about risk allocation. And now we're doing insurance and we're doing insurance on both the technology and on the financing. So it's helped because I can go deep on pretty much both of those verticals, both technically and financially. And it's just helping us kind of create better products in the market and approach it with, you know, I guess with an eye towards solutions. 
Now, we hire people much smarter than me and adept at really going deep on the technology, really going deep on the finance. But at least for my seat, I, you know, I'm able to go in and, you know, I'd say having a breadth of background, especially for folks that want to go into maybe a more general management or specialty role, I found to be really helpful now that I'm 15 years into the industry. And I'm sure it helps with your role as, you know, chief operating officer because you're wearing, as we we're talking before, a lot of different hats. You come at things at a different perspective because you worked in different aspects of things as well, different types of company. So everything maybe like is more general. I feel like in a sense, you could see things maybe clearer maybe than someone who's like in a specific role. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I get asked, what does it mean to be a COO? And I kind of say I do everything and I do nothing. I probably do more of everything than nothing. But for my company, at least, I'm finance, I'm legal, I'm HR. I mean, I have teams that support me on all those, but they rolled to me. We're doing some product development. So I'm working with the team on launching a new property insurance product, as I mentioned. So there's a lot of diversity of things that I have to look at in any given day. And you know, I'm always encouraging my team. People hate looking at legal documents, but especially if you want to progress through your career, like it's important to know your way around how those work, what an indemnity clause is. And I think just being kind of inquisitive about all the things that are going on in the business and not only thinking about your little silo is really important because I don't know, it'll help you do your job better than now or in the future. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of this podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. The team has been a strong force within the U.S. commercial solar market for years and was instrumental in the creation of virtual power purchase agreements and associated financing structures. Summit Ridge Energy has leveraged this experience to launch Summit Ridge Capital, a dedicated funding platform that acquires pre-operational community solar and battery storage projects. SRE also works with landowners across the country to maximize the value of their acreage by offering predictable lease income to host their solar farms. From site identification and system design to takeout financing to construction management, Summit Ridge Energy is the most complete solution provider in the community solar space. Summit Ridge Energy was interviewed twice on the Solar Maverick podcast. Definitely check out those episodes. The latest one was episode 87, how Summit Ridge Energy became one of the largest owners of community solar project in the U.S. That was with Steve Rader, who's the CEO of the company, and Brian Dunn, who holds a dual role of CEO, CFO for Summit Ridge Energy, and they're both founders of the company. And then there was an earlier interview, episode 26, a developer's perspective on the U.S. solar market with Steve Rader, who again is the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge Energy. If you want to learn more about Summit Ridge Energy, you could check them out at their website, which is srenergy.com or info at srenergy.com. We'll be also having in the notes of the podcast details about our sponsor. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. That's words of wisdom, definitely for sure, understanding legal documents. And I agree with you on another point too. There's a shortage of qualified people right now in the solar industry. The industry is going to continue to grow exponentially. So there's going to, I feel like, be a need for talented you know, people. So Yeah, I think one of your questions you'd like to ask at the end is like, what's your forecast for the future? And I think our last three hires, or at least three of our last four, all came from the oil and gas space and have been really, really good. And I know there's been some discussion on Twitter. I've seen like, how should you think about bringing talent into the space? And I would say, by all means, go for it. Like, There's some incredibly talented people 
that early career, mid-career, even late career that see the way those industries are going, want to do something more fulfilling, have backgrounds that are directly applicable to a lot of the work we're doing. And we've had a lot of success with that. So I would say if anyone is in that position where you're currently hiring, you know, the solar industry needs to grow both from installed base, but also just from a talent perspective. There's a lot of really talented folks out there. Yeah, that's another great point. I appreciate you sharing that. And what I thought was actually interesting as well, you talked about like your new product launch. You talked a little bit about how you're getting into property insurance. I think you hired two people recently. Can you talk about the new product and how it complements maybe your other insurance products, specifically the solar revenue put product? I know we spoke about that before. Yeah. So property insurance is probably the insurance most people think of when they think of insurance, which is, hey, my project burned to the ground. It was hit by a hurricane. The most famous event, maybe infamous event in our industry was a big hailstorm in 2019 that ruined a bunch of equipment out in Texas. And really since that event, which in many ways was a formative event for the renewable energy property insurance industry, the market changed. I mean, the macro is that on the whole insurance, they call it a hardening market. Prices were increasing and underwriters were getting more conservative. So setting aside renewables, that's kind of the backdrop. But then within the renewable space, you had really some pretty bad underwriting results that led to a much sharper eye, (laughs) I guess you can call it, on the technology and on the structuring. So you had a few events all coalesce at once. You had deductibles increase. So that means the amount that the owner needs to pay before the insurance kick in. You had sublimits introduced. So that means the total amount you can insure came down, especially for what we call these natural catastrophe events. Premiums went up, so it just got more expensive. Certain exclusions or modifications to the policies were introduced. So there were kind of like three or four things all at once that changed, really in reaction to unprofitability for the insurance carriers. And you know, as I mentioned, we now have a lot of lost data. The last number I looked at, and we're recording this in August, so it might be bigger by the time this is released, is $50 billion of underwriting results on the industry. And we're using that now to feed into the modeling, to feed into the underwriting, to really try to discriminate and say, these risks are better, these risks are not better, and introduce, I call it, better underwriting into the market. So that's property insurance. It complements, I'd say, the solar revenue put. The solar revenue put is taking non-physical underproduction. So if you twin those together, you kind of get a full wrap on, (laughs) I guess, everything in some ways. But it's a market, I'd say, that needs some data-oriented solutions on the property side. And yeah, we've staffed up to support it and expect to be in the market by the end of 2021. Yeah, that is really helpful Like to explain. I mean, I've heard so much about Hailstorm in 2019 in Texas, how the panels obviously had issues. And then it's interesting too, because I've heard as well from other insurance brokers that really like for property insurance, like the pricing has changed as what you said, actually for hire and then like exclusions as well that are in the policy itself. So it's interesting because I've been hearing a lot about this like the past several months. And that's great that you're servicing like, a part of the industry that there's not a lot of data in that needs it to be able to underwrite it, the risk. Yeah. And it's had real operational impacts where now it's in many instances, I hear it's a C-level initiative now to procure insurance where it used to be. I mean, when I was at Wells Fargo, we would say, go get insurance. And they would say, how much do you want? And we pick a really high number and they go get it. And that's just not really available anymore. So at the asset owner side, it's become elevated within the organization. 
And then on the investor side, in many instances, they're not even able to get enough insurance to satisfy the loan documents. So mm-hmm. we're seeing it become an elevated underwriting risk for lenders and for tax equity investors, where it used to be pretty far down the diligence list. It used to be a check the box. Now it might be, for some banks that we work with, it might be a top three or top five thing that they're looking at well before they're getting to the negotiation. It's just part of their qualification and screening criteria. Can this project get adequate insurance for primarily these natural catastrophe risks that the market is concerned about? So I look at it as if it doesn't get solved, it could be more of an exogenous risk for the industry. It could inhibit growth. So we're trying to get ahead of that. And as I mentioned, bring data-oriented solutions to the market. That's great to hear. And I appreciate you like providing that sort of color because I didn't realize it was that high, you know, on due diligence checklist. That's pretty high if it's the third or fifth thing, you know, three to five. It can be depending on the institution and depending on the location of the project. Interesting. That's great information. I appreciate you providing that. It's interesting too, like if you could talk about solar landscape, it's something that, you know, I look at pretty frequently. I thought it was interesting, which I'm not surprised that it's one of the most popular parts of your website. I really appreciate like you're providing a lot of great information for the industry. Can you talk about solar landscape? Sure. Yeah. So another resource on the website, as you mentioned, Benoit, is the solar landscape. Well, I'll tell you what it is and I'll tell you how we got there. But it's a list of active investors, both lenders, tax equity, investment banks, et cetera, that are in the market. And a link to basically the person who's in charge of the group. And I think what we found is kind of comes back to just our data-oriented ethos is that the market is growing quickly. Market's robust. And it's not always obvious who's in the market, who's not in the market, who you should call if you have a deal. And we realized, hey, we know most of these banks anyway, because we're kind of educating them on our products. And that would be a great resource for the industry. Yeah, we created a landscape. And as you mentioned, it is an often visited and maybe I think the most visited piece of our website, just because it has you know real-time content about who's active in the market and what kind of capital they're providing and what kind of segments they're interested in. And then we complement that. We have a lot of data on our website just for the community. There's one called DealFlow, which then looks at, okay, what has actually been invested in in the last six to 12 months? what deals are getting done. And it's basically a wholesome catalog of all the transactions that we see in the market. So with those twin activities, you can really get a good sense, especially if you're a new developer. But frankly, we are pretty seasoned project finance teams that pull that up just to make sure they're calling all the banks that might be interested in their deals. Yeah, that's on the website too, Solar Landscape. If you Google it, you can also find it. Solar Landscape, but we spell it with an E. So it's the Solar Landscape. (laughs) We think it's pretty clever. It is pretty clever (laughs) as well on the notes of the podcast, the link. So people can't find solar landscape, L-E-N-D-S-C-A-P, you know, definitely have it on the website. And that's another actually great point you mentioned too, of the deal flow. I'm reading all the news all the time, but then to have it like separated out over a three to six month period and then kind of read through it. I have a better understanding of kind of what's going on in the industry. So I appreciate you creating like that valuable content. There's a lot of change and a lot of news, and sometimes it's helpful just to consolidate it to your point. So we find value in it for ourselves. So why not make it available to others? And the Solar Maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. We call our listeners Solar Mavericks. You know, obviously you're a Solar Maverick yourself. It's interesting. We heard like how it was kind of your career path from Chevron to KWH. I know you went high level. But it's been amazing because I think you were saying in two weeks, it's going to be your seven-year anniversary. 
at KWH Analytics. Can you talk about like what you've learned in the entrepreneurial journey you've been with the company and obviously as one of the first people to work at the company as well? So context is I was at Wells Fargo for three and a half years doing project finance, structured finance, and I loved what I was doing. And I left that job to go join a startup. And part of the logic, sometimes I guess why, is a lot of my education was around entrepreneurship. And I had worked in, I call it, SPG was about 120 people, Wells Fargo, obviously huge institution. But I kind of reflected on it. And I was at a stage in my life, just my personal life, where I was like, this is a good time to take a risk. And if I'm retiring and I haven't done entrepreneurship, I'm probably going to kick myself. So let's give it a shot. And one of the pieces of advice I got at the time was that, especially moving from a big company into entrepreneurship, they said, it's like jumping into a cold pool where it's really uncomfortable at first and really makes you second guess your decision. And then you warm up to it and you don't want to get out. And I think that's actually a pretty good analogy. It sounded bizarre at the time, but it was also this personally for myself as an individual. It was very disorienting. I mean, I went from an office to a living room. This is obviously pre-pandemic, but like I was sitting on Ikea chairs and Richard's living room, like basically telling a story about everything we're going to do without actually having anything. And it was a pretty different experience for me. But now that I'm doing in seven years, it's hard to imagine not doing something that's more entrepreneurial just because it, you know, it moves so fast. You have so much creativity you can put into the business. You know, you're really trying to solve problems that others in the industry aren't doing. So I would say the pool is now warm, or at least I've acclimated to the pool. And it feels very different than working in a big company. And I've enjoyed it myself. I'm sure the pool got pretty warm pretty quickly. It took a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, <I'll do> <laughs> But that's great to hear. And I know you're referencing and maybe our audience might not know Richard Matsu. He's the chief executive officer. And that's right. Um, you're working basically in his house or garage. I was working in his apartment in San Francisco. It felt like a true startup. I guess now we're all working from our own respective apartments or homes. But at the time it was, yeah, when we were still going to offices, imagine that. Yeah, for sure. But it sounds like the typical like San Francisco startup story. And then, you know, obviously evolved to, you know, a lot bigger company. And it's amazing to see like the growth and how your company is expanding and growing in a very short period of time. So kudos to you and your team. Thanks. Yeah. And I mean, it's keeping an eye open to opportunities because I would tell you when I joined insurance, but not anywhere in our business plan or our long range or short range planning. And it just sort of fell out of conversations we were having with people about ways we could support the market. So that is, I guess, one of the benefits of working in a, in a I'll call it a startup, is the ability to really, as I mentioned, work with the market to identify what problems exist and then try to apply your company to help solve them. That's a key thing I think that you just mentioned. Like companies, especially smaller companies, are continuously adapting based on what they're hearing in the market and then basically pivoting to offer that if they think they could add value to the customer and the industry. That's essentially what you've done. So well, that's right. And now we're taking that kind of the original product, the solar revenue put, we're expanding it into property insurance. And you know, our vision to ensure the energy transition is to continue to expand the product offering, the technology offering to really build full-fledged support, I guess, to carriers. So the people actually providing the capital or the balance sheets. 
because they're getting a a lot of pressure for insuring coal or oil and gas, and obviously a lot of real direct exposure. I mean, there've been I'm probably going to get this stat exactly wrong, but it was something like 23 billion dollar insurance events in the United States in 2020: hurricanes, tornadoes, lightning events, hail, whatever. But that each independently caused a billion dollars worth of damage. So the insurance companies are directly wearing the risk, in addition to some social risk of just continuing to insure who will eventually be stranded assets or you know climate contributing assets. So you know our vision is to really be a platform or a company that can help support them move into the energy transition space, and then also obviously help the energy transition companies continue to scale. That's really interesting because that was actually one of my questions. Where do you see the company in the future? And essentially, you answer that question. I'm in your head, Benoit. For sure you are. (laughs) And then one of the other things that I was going to say was interesting because you were talking about hiring and there's a lot of qualified people out there. That was one of the sort of future trends question that I had. Like, Can you talk about outside of that? Like, What future trends do you see in the solar industry? I think the other thing that is going to be important for developers and that I think there's attention on is that within the property insurance market, the theme is to push more of the risk onto the asset owner. So it's reflected through deductibles. But the idea is how do you align incentives so that the developer, the owner is taking care of the asset and deploying technology that's going to help mitigate risk. And the insurance carriers a little bit comes in after the fact, right? The project's built and they get to decide whether or not to insure it. And what they're saying is, I think understandably, we don't want to insure, certainly with low deductibles, projects that are built in a risky manner and risky areas. So there's always this tension for a developer, how do I get the lowest cost out in the field? Yes. And I think if you look forward to the next 20, 30, 40 years of operating it, the question is also, how do I make sure it's resilient? right? I can't just buy cheap insurance to paper off the hurricane risk, the hail risk, what have you. And more of that resiliency, the asset resiliency, my view has to go back into both the site selection stage of development, as well as the technology and design stage of development. So if you're building asset in California, right? Like being intentional about fire breaks and having water on site and things that are going to help mitigate, not only from an O&M perspective, but structurally mitigate risk to the project. And it has to happen. And you know, it's good for the owner, but also they're going to be asked to wear more of that risk. You know, I think the days of $100,000 deductibles on mega projects are gone. You're not going to see that again. So, you know, being intentional up front, eyes wide open, that there are things you can do to help mitigate that risk. And it might cost you a little bit more over the short term, but at least over the long term, it's going to be, you know, kind of a threshold to being able to sell that asset down the road when it's time to do so. So I'm hopeful that that becomes a long-term theme. And I think it will because it's inevitable. Yeah, I agree. I think it's inevitable as well. And, you know, that's what will differentiate the successful developers compared to others, because as you know, it's just getting more and more competitive. It's hard to justify spending more money on a project. I totally get that. But I think also there is a little bit of false expectation that the insurance market will just continue to blindly insure what is actually at its core kind of a risky asset. And I think those blinders have come off. And I think that that's a structural change to the insurance industry. So if you kind of put it back in the project finance context of like he or she who understands the risk 
the best should wear the risk. That is the ultimate developer that's building it, right? I mean, they're operating it, they're building it. They should wear some of that risk. And I think that that's what the insurance industry is now saying. And it's, you know, it should inform not only O&M considerations, but design and site selection considerations as well. That's a great point. And that's like a great way to end the podcast because I think that's a huge thing that I think we'll see as you're seeing it. You know, this has been a great interview. Jason, I appreciate your time. It's a lot of great perspective and insights that I think will be very helpful to the audience. And I've learned a lot as well from the conversation. If our listeners wanted to learn more about KWH Analytics and you, like, what is the best way for them to do that? So my email address is my first name dot my last name at kwhanalytics.com. That's probably going to be in your notes. If you come to our website, then we have a contact us page. Those all actually make their way to the leadership team so we can connect you to the right individual. You can email contact at kwhanalytics.com. Probably easier to spell than my name. So there's all sorts of ways. The easiest is probably the form on our website. You can find me on LinkedIn. But yeah, happy to connect with anyone about the resources on our page, about you know the solar revenue put, about property insurance, whatever might be on their mind. Definitely. And it'll, as you mentioned, be on the notes of the podcast. Again, thank you, Jason, for being on. And it was great you know, catching up. It's been a long time. Thanks, Kanoi. Happy to be here. And yeah, found the conversation instructed. So appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown.